Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Arrowed by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 29 The Dead and the Broken Gravity did weird things then, as I took a step back from the woman, her denial and her hauntingly beautiful dark eyes. The foot I had raised from the ground would not go down again. It was not so much that the foot had lost weight and mass, rather that the air at the precise point between my heel and the metal deck of the medical bay had become solid. Each invisible molecule of hydrogen and oxygen having swollen up like balloons impeding my foot's progress. The air is playing a trick on me, I realised, but could not speak the words out loud, which was just as well, for it was not the air that was the problem. It was space that was playing with me. No, not space. He had already had his jest. Now it was the turn of Melchorisha. I blinked, and in the brief shuttering of my lids, I experienced again that final moment in the bullet pod with Ifdeck gripping my hand as we fell into abrupt blackness. My eyelids opened. The denying woman was staring at me, her pupils widening and darkening to the tone of old blood. Ah, I thought... And the thought that followed that, now it all makes sense, floated slow from my mouth, words tumbling in different directions. I understood everything. I was indeed dead. Dead and in Melchorisha's domain. The evidence was overwhelming. I was in the company of heretics and corpses and, proof positive, a smiling augur. My vizier was absent because the jammy bastard had managed to sidestep Trishika and made it to the great paradisical part of earth. Some divine bureaucratic error. It had to be an error. What sins had I ever committed? Had shunted me into Trishika. Yet I was unafraid. I need only get word to Ifdek and he would put everything right unless he was too busy regaling the angels with blood-curdling tales of his earlier life as a demos guard. I had seen an intercom beside the door where the bodies lay. I knew what I had to do. My foot pushed through the molecules of air. Hydrogen and oxygen squealed in protest, but offered no resistance. Corkani's face smiled up in front of me, a quizzical expression on it, his mouth gawping open and shut like a deep-sea fish. Then a hand appeared on his shoulder, 
and a face loomed up behind his, angry and ugly, and held together by gauze and thread. Kokani was pulled away from me. I kept on walking. Melkirisha, knowing what I was up to, tried to distract and waylay me. Looking back at the dark-eyed woman, I saw a skeleton was sitting beside her. The woman opened her blouse. The skeleton bent down and pushed its skull deep into the bluey whiteness of a milk-fattened breast. To one side of me, sheets were rolling off beds, revealing more men, women and children, many hideously maimed. Suddenly animate, they left their beds and began to move towards Kokani. One figure raised a blackened arm that was surrounded by a thin film of see-through material. As the wretch gestured towards the auger, two charred fingers became dislodged and rolled around the transparent bag. Behind this charred assembly were two naked figures on top of a bed, the man fucking the woman from behind. The image snared me, held me and hauled me towards it, he driving deeper and deeper, she pushing herself harder and harder against him, snatches of pubic hair and his glittering hardness. Gasping and panting, they turned their heads to stare at me. Their faces dripped like wax, then solidified into the image of my father and the young Christiana. My father's face contorted and changed into the shape of a snarling wolf. Christiana's face aged and warped into the mask of a hideous crone. With a grunt, the crone bent her head down, face hidden by a tangle of sweat-dripping dirty grey hair, the hag forced her body back onto the wolf's cock. The wolf snarled and snapped at the air, fangs dripping spit, blood-red tongue rolling in and out of its mouth. The beast's back legs were scrambling frantically at the crone's thighs, its tail beating from side to side. The crone's head had now pressed into the bed, her skinny arms stretched out on either side of her, gripping the bed sheets. The wolf's front claws tore into her shoulder blades. Flecks of blood spattered the crone's thin matted hair. I was nauseated. Yet even as I turned away, the forms of the demonic lovers transformed once more. The wolf's muzzle grew shorter, his claws became fingers, the crone's hair darkened, her spindly arms thickened, the frantic coupling ceased. The wolf was my father once more, with a wry expression on his face. He put a hand around the throat of the woman beneath him, then, cupping her chin ever so gently, he lifted her head up so she too could look at me. Tears pricked my eyes as I gazed at the round, full face of my ever-young, ever-beautiful wife, Numa. No, 
I whispered to my father, This cannot be true. Numa hated you more than I did. You're nothing but a weird and fucked up dream. The image vanished. I pressed a hand against my chest, but there was no pain. Instead, I could feel blood pumping through my veins, like a great tidal wave of life. I had suffered shock and a dizzying sense of dislocation, but death had not caught me, not yet. I looked around the medical bay. The grieving woman was clutching the dead child, wrapped in Kokani's green-black robe. Four or five figures stood in front of the auger, remonstrating angrily. You bastard! spat one. Other wounded survivors pushed back the medical robots who were trying to intervene. Stop! I shouted, rage surging through me. Rage at Kokani and his obscene beliefs. Rage at the heretics and their pathetic vulnerability. Rage at Ivdek for his negligent absence. But the bitterest rage was for myself. And all the years I had wasted to numbness and frivolity. Standing now in that room filled with the broken and the dead, rage ignited me. Filled me with a fire that I had not experienced since the confident, callous, gallous days of my youth. I spoke again, this time quietly. But the voice that spoke was not that of Marcus, Marcus, the dilettante. It was the voice of the sage and prince. I said stop. Kokani and the heretics turned to me, the dispute momentarily forgotten. This, I explained, is my vessel. I own everything on it. I hesitated, not sure what to say next. The great surge of anger had abated. My legs felt weak, my belly hollow. Kokani and the men and women did not move. Even the robots were motionless. I spoke again. My voice quiet and thin, but if anything, my audience listened more intently. I own the beds you were laid on, I said, and the robots that tended you. I own this vessel's weapons system and its rocket fuel. Even the dust belongs to me. You have been rescued by one of my ships, but the law, as any true spacefarer should know, allows me to remove from my vessel anyone threatening it, or its crew, or its passengers. The last words had trickled from my mouth as dry and insubstantial as sand. Forgive us, Your Excellency, spoke a red-haired woman. We did not realise who you were. We have been through fire and death this day, said the man with the charred arm. The best of us are dead, and our celebrants lost forever. He looked at Kokani, 
and his face flushed with hatred. Now we find we have to endure the company of one of our tormentors. And with that, he spat in Kalkani's face. Thanks for listening to this latest chapter of Marcus Marcus and the Hurting Heart. Stay tuned for future chapters and mind tell your friends and relations and ancient enemies about the podcast. If you want to know more about my work, you can follow me on rapfultonstories.weebly.com My Instagram is at Celtic Tales Galway and my Twitter is at Havering Rab.